tell me who's that right? John the Revelator, tell me who's that right? John the Revelator, tell me who's that right? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seals. I love that old-timey song. I also love this old-timey song, and it is going to play uh, into our look at Revelation chapter 17 to 20. Uh, Johnny Cash did a nice rendition of this, but it goes like this. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. You may throw your rocks and hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man, but as sure as God made black and white, what's down in the dark will be brought to light. Or perhaps like uh, Willie and Merle saying, it's all going to pot. Hey, come on in. Let's have some fun. Revelation chapter 17, verse 20. Welcome to the Biblical Channel. Always glad you're here because we firmly believe that the best thing that a human being can do is grab a hold of the Bible, read it, and get a little help along the way. The Bible is never meant to be read in isolation all alone. You're lonesome. You can, not bad, but it's best to gather with some friends, loved ones, like-minded ones, people who actually want to be as faithful as possible to the words of the Bible. And so we just want to be a help in your reading of the Bible. We just want to be a help in, in what the Bible does, and that is lift us to our greatest possible potential. The Bible has been ringing the chamois of humanity for its best for 2,000 years, plus, you know, including those Hebrews and the old part of the Bible also did a great job. That's because God does a great job. God is great. People? Crazy. Okay, so... We can't uh, do our normal reading of the text because we're handling the book of Revelation in such big chunks. So we're leaving the reading to you and we're having a big talk about chapters at a time and how they work so that you can actually read it and not be frustrated, I suppose. The book of Revelation is not meant to frustrate you, nor is it meant to be really dived into the details with. It's meant to leave an impression, a big impression, a big picture kind of thing. And so Chapters 17 to 20 form another unit, uh, a big picture that we need to take away. But before we dive in, let us indeed pray like the Lord Jesus taught us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed, uh, give us as they our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Delivering us from evil, man, that's the name of the game, and only God can do that. And we're going to look at that in just this talk right here. So anyhow, dear Lord, uh, we come to Revelation chapter 17, verse 20. And whenever I read chapter 17, verse 20, I kind of feel like that old phrase I used to use uh, and I heard so many times, and that is one more and we'll all go. So we're going to do this one, and then we're going to have one more, and we're all going to go, and we're going to go better people because we're going to have the right big picture in mind that God has for all his people until the Christ comes back, until Jesus claims his, his second time coming. Now, in the meantime, we've got to persevere. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. But chapter 17 to 20 is all about the end 
of evil. And it's very important that we understand that the Bible's big claim is there is an end to evil and God will bring it to an end. And so you have to have chapter 17 to 20 showing a very clear end of all the evil. All the evil comes to an end and then we'll be ready for the new heavens and the new earth presented to us in chapter 21 to 22. You see, this is all working in a very nice literary form that John has put together. We just got to make sure that we're recognizing how John has put this together for us and how, how you know Christians throughout the ages have always seen this. It's only a small batch that really get this book wrong, um, and that's because they're outside of the community of faithful Christians. They're off on their own, and then they attract others to be off on their own. It's being alone in your Bible reading sometimes that leads us astray. We need to get back into the group. So I recommend that you're always getting back into the group. God calls us to be a part of a group. Okay, that's a different talk for a different time. But let us begin just by recognizing that the Bible makes a big claim that evil is going to come to an end. There is a day when it all stops, and God, and God alone, knows that day. Jesus made that very clear. John's not going to change a thing in the book of Revelation, and it's not some sort of secret code so you can know um, which day on the calendar the world's going to come to the end. It is going to come to an end as we know it, because evil has to come to an end as we know it. So when it comes to the world in which we live in, in recent days, when I say recent days, I mean the last couple hundred years, we have big movements of people that are attaching themselves to what we might call Marx, Karl Marx, Marxists. And Marxists typically believe that greed is the source of all evil. And then there's the socialists, you know, so Marxism lands in communism. Socialists also, in my mind, land in communism too, but socialists are usually a little bit different, and that is they believe that the real evil is ignorance and poverty, but either way, both groups assume that the only way forward is for a powerful government to create a utopia. So for the Marxists, you know, being uh, uh, rich is is an evil, and, and you've got to be taken out. Of course, Unless you're part of the government, then the government can be rich. But, but anyhow, that, well, that's, that's not to be talked about. But being rich is, is very bad because you're greedy. Um, and then for the socialists, you know, it's the, uh, the ignorance factory that you're not allowed to be stupid uh, whenever it comes to the socialists. You're not allowed to be uh, stupid and you're not allowed to be poor, which also means that there's going to have to be some great distribution of wealth because, you know, being they also believe that, you know, greed is a problem, too. Either way. The idea is, is that they will determine who the stupid people are. And, uh, well, you know what happens to stupid people in a group of people who don't think that you're supposed to be stupid. Well, now, on a positive side, socialists believe in education and they believe in, you know, that, but they, what they really believe in is for the government to control these things. Some sort of big, powerful government is going to have to create utopia. And the big side slap that they all give is that there is no way that God is going to create utopia. We have to do it here on earth and we have to do it through these big powerful governments and these big powerful governments will tell you how we get to do it. So stupid people beware. Uh, you, you're not allowed to be stupid. God allows you to be stupid by the way. Um, and I thank him for it. Anyhow, historically though, Christians, Christians have filled in the gap, we might say, 
and taken on the burden of schools and hospitals and relief for the poor. It's only a very, very recent phenomenon that governments, socialist governments and communist governments, have decided to take on the burden of schools and hospitals and relief for the poor. And why is that? Well, that's because they want to create the utopia themselves. They want you to swear your allegiance and your loyalty to it and to have no dissenters. We've seen this thing play out. History has, has given us enough of an example of, of what happens in communist-run countries and what happens in fascist-run countries. We've got lots of history that prove this thing out. But it's the Christians, the Christians who have always stand stood firm in believing that the elimination of evil is no easy thing, nor, nor is it ever going to be really possible to create a perfect society. Hence, hence the, the new age, so to speak, from a Christian point of view, will not arise from some sort of human effort. No, no. Human effort will always get us instead more of the same old, same old, uh, you know, what is uh, clothed in, in, in all kinds of beautiful clothes, what is, uh, what is pointed out as being nothing short of miraculous when it comes to government and their ability to be helpful, always results in the same kind of power grabs that human beings have always been famous for. But Christians believe that only God can remove evil. So you're not going to remove evil easily. Christians have never thought that that's even remotely possible. In fact, the Christian form of government, what the Christians really believe when it comes to a form of government is that government is nothing more than a necessary evil. That's why I love the founding fathers of the United States of America, because that's what they said. They said, you know what? Government's needed but it's only a necessary evil. So you're always going to have to keep your eye on it. There's no way you should put your trust in it. I like that kind of talk. And so that is the Christian idea of government. You do need it, but it is a necessary evil. So in chapter 17 to 20, we've got the whore Babylon. We've got the beast. We've got the dragon. We've got the false prophet. They're all going to prepare for God's defeat. They are absolutely clueless, which is hilarious. They're absolutely clueless, though, that they lost the battle clearly on the cross of Jesus Christ, that Jesus' death and his resurrection was God's clear battle, one, that defeated evil once and for all, and we're only living out the, the, the last remaining days, which could be thousands of years, by the way, because God is so patient and, you know, well, just patient? We're not. Anyhow, God's final disposal of the Babylon whore, the beast, the dragon, the false prophet we're going to find is a non-event <laughs> because the sword of God's word, once it's pulled out, just does it that quick. And so that reminds us about how God created the world, that he created the world with his word that he just put things into being. And just the way he put things into being, he can take them out. And Jesus in the book of Revelation is the one who with the word of God just takes it out. There's no effort involved here. It's a non-event when these uh, great powers of evil mount up their, their big last hurrah or stand against God. It just comes crashing to a halt. Done. Done because the word of God said it's just done. Okay, this is done.
It's that easy for God, and he will do it. And we are meant to see that it is that easy for God, and he will do it. In the meantime, he's going to let our craziness of humanity continue, and we need to persevere, we need to hang in there, and we need to see this world for what it is. And what it is is don't put your trust in government. Never put your trust in government. Don't put your trust in Rome. Don't put your trust in the United States of America. Because, listen, the founders of the United States of America— they said you should never trust government, and they were the government. That's hilarious. I love that kind of, you know, humility, um, and that's what we need to have as an attitude. The one thing the Bible makes absolutely clear, though, is especially with Jesus, he, he makes it clear, no insurrections. We, we you know, you are not going to go out there and create war in my name. God will get this thing done in its right time. It will come to an end. you got to be patient. Um, as God is being patient with this world. That doesn't mean you can't try to do great things. You should be doing great things because God is doing great things and he's called you to do great things. So the burden of schools, the burden of hospitals and relief for the poor, Christians should never give up on that. We should always take that into our own hands because we know how important it is for lifting human beings' souls to their greatest potential. And when we control the schools and the hospitals and relief for the poor, we also have opportunity to share the gospel with people. Anyhow, that's what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. They're the ones who led from the front. It's no surprise that governments were a little jealous of what Christians were doing, and they saw that this would be a great way to grab power as well. And that's what we've seen in the last 100, 100 years or so, is these uh, you know big efforts for governments to grab power. And this is the same old government of yesteryear, just grabbing power, doing what governments do. Okay, let's move forward, though. Um, let's actually take a look at, you know, chapter 17 and 18, which is, in my eyes, absolutely hilarious. Because, first of all, the whore of Babylon becomes center stage. And the whore of Babylon, for John writing, John the Revelator, is Rome. You know, and so its emperors and its vassals are all represented in this crazy looking beast that uh, she is riding and all of her perverseness and sexual immoralities are what keeps this gaggle of emperors and vassal states together, definitely taking a pot shot at Rome. And you also have to remember that John is pretty much clearly predicting Rome's downfall which for John, he was living at the absolute zenith of Rome's, well, I guess, power and, and prosperity. So for many people, it would have been a head scratcher listening to the book of Revelation, like, really, John, the Roman Empire's coming down? Are you kidding me? Well, John was clear. Yeah, sure it is, because it's a human institution. It will come down. And it's interesting how he describes it will come down. But before that, we just got to admit today, it's 2,000 years later, where's Rome today? A bunch of old buildings that we go and take a look at in Italy somewhere, right? Um, and then there's, you know, Babel itself. Where's Babel today? Where's Babylon today? Um, where Where is uh, Genghis Khan and all his armies? You know, where, where are those Mayans at? You know, it's the same picture all the time. And hey, where's that empire in which the sun supposedly never set? How are they doing? Hey, guess what? There have been many 
whores of Babylon. And John actually makes that clear, I think, in chapter 17, verse 15, that there's many to come. It's not just Rome. When he says, where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. This thing is going to continue to raise its head time and time again. And that's really what the uh, chapter 6 to 16 kept taking different looks at. There are going to be a continual cycle of world calamity under a number of banners that will make it look like God is not in control. But every time God, uh, John showed us something in 6 to 16, he also showed us how in control God is. And that's the big reminder of Revelation is God is in supreme control. He is completely aware of all that. There is nothing that escapes his sight. And so I'm also reminded of, of Will Durant. I really enjoy him as a historian. Um, and, and he's the one who says that great empires rarely fall uh, from the enemy without, but they usually fall from the enemy within. And I think he's absolutely right. And what's hilarious is, is that God laughing has absolutely at what to do nothing to defeat earthly to power because it defeats itself. What's hilarious is that God doesn't even have to defeat the whore of Babylon because John reveals that she is defeated by her own. The beast and her allies hate her, and they turn on her, and they're the ones who bring her down. Chapter 18, verse 16 to 17. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth had been laid waste. There's God laughing at humans thinking that they're the ones who will create some sort of utopia on earth. God doesn't even have to lift a finger to defeat the earthly powers because we do ourselves in. It defeats itself. And word to the United States of America, we're doing it to ourselves. I have no idea where it's going to go. I still like our form of government, but many things are changing quite quickly and we'll have to see where this thing goes. But leave it to human beings to defeat themselves. God doesn't even have to lift a finger. So clearly doesn't lift a finger to defeat the whore of Babylon. Um, she is done in by her own. And that's funny every day of the week. Anyhow, chapter 19 shows us just how calm, cool, and relaxed God is in the face of these great powers of evil coming to an end. And in chapter 19, there's a party in heaven. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice, John, the revelator says, of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of her servants. Much other language in there, but it's all pointing out the same thing. There is no sweat on God's brow when it comes to defeating evil. It doesn't take anything. In fact, God's focus is on the party. God's focus is on the wonderful news of his salvation because it's freely available. All this evil stuff is completely unnecessary, but humans insist on it. So anyhow, we also hear, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. And then, all importantly, is the marriage 
of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's you, that's me. Every Christian is the bride of Christ, and this picture shows it all coming together. The party in heaven is going to be a wedding party where the Lamb and the Lamb's bride, who is us, the Lamb being Jesus, all come together for a massive wedding celebration. It's a party! This, this, this vision that John sees also cracks me up because John sees this vision and he is overwhelmed and he drops to his knees and he worships. He starts worshiping the angel that uh, is beside him. And the angel, the angel just says, whoa, stop it, man. Get up. Don't worship me. I'm, I'm with you. We're worshiping God. Worship God, John. Don't worship an angel. That's dumb. Oh, it's hilarious. And and again, what, what's even more endearing to me is that we could almost tell this is this is a an apostle of, that walked with Jesus because the apostles were so transparent with their own not getting it moments. You know, that's what makes the gospels, that's what makes the writing of the apostles so endearing to us, is because they don't they don't exempt themselves. They show themselves for what they are, bumbling idiots at times, making the wrong moves at times. Here's John worshiping this angel because he's so overwhelmed with this great party that he sees. He figures it's the right thing to do. That reminds me of Peter. Remember when Peter, like, didn't when he didn't know what to do, he just did something dumb. And here, John doesn't know what to do. He just does something dumb. And John was one that used to make fun of Peter a lot, but that's also funny. Anyhow. So John does straighten up, you know, and he stands and, and, uh, and in comes a whole new scene. It is business Jesus. Remember how John in chapter four and five, he was told you know, he, he, the, the, the main character who was Jesus was described as a lion. But as John kept looking at him, he, he, he all he could see was a, a slain lamb, a lamb with, with blood, you know, coming out. And so it's a bit of a head scratcher for John. But now, now we see that lion and lamb once again coming together in that same imagery when John says, Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, like the white horse of all white horses. And the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is business Jesus showing up um, for the last episode of evil. And what I love about you know, Jesus showing up for this uh, last episode of Bible. Here's that lion, but he still is that slain lamb in the same image. And uh, he is wearing that robe that is dipped in blood. But I never forget reading Revelation for the first time. And when I came across that passage where Jesus has a tattoo, where, you know, uh, on his thigh and on his robe saying, King of kings and Lord of lords, I knew, I knew that that was the one to follow. Jesus Christ is the one to follow because he's king of kings and lord of lords. Um, anyhow, um, here's Jesus at the battle line, so to speak. And we have the beast and the false prophet ready to throw down, you know. Yeah, guess what? In another hilarious move, 
God, the heavens, call for the birds to go ahead and clean up the battlefield. Which is funny because the beast and the false prophet are all lined up thinking they're going to do battle with, you know, the one who's on the white horse. Jesus never moves. He sits. He just sits because he doesn't have to move. He doesn't have to lift a finger. In fact, in fact, it just ends and the, the idea of birds coming down to, to you know, is, is the idea of a battle that's ended. And, and so before it even begins, it ends. And God calls in the birds. Says, ah, just clean it up. Pick it up. Have fun, birds. Have your feast, birds. And in the middle of it, what cracks me up is Jesus just sits there. He didn't have to move. He didn't have to flinch. He did, there was no sweat on his brow. In fact, I imagine it was sad in some ways that, you know, evil in its ridiculousness thinks that it can get one up on God, but in the end, it has to go. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. And that is the imagery that's going on here. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. And now is that time. Jesus is on the horse and he cuts him down. He is the word of God. And that's all it takes is a word. It's done. You're done. Call in the birds. It's done. Well, then we have chapter 20 and chapter 20 tends to send some people into a dizzying array of trouble because they're still trying to make the book of Revelation work on time sequences. They're fixated on time sequences, which is totally wrong because John has told you every step of the way is organized by his visions and what he sees. And he wants you to see what he's seeing. And he overlaps his vision so many times. And so the thousand years is really what everybody gets, you know, caught in a tailspin over, but there's no need for it. So you have a thousand years where Satan as the great dragon is in prison. Then you have a thousand years where Jesus is reigning. Well, you know, how do we put that together? I'll tell you how to put it together. Read the Bible, because in chapter 20, verse five, that thousand years is described as, you know, beginning at the first resurrection, which is Jesus' resurrection. And it ends at chapter 20, verse 6, which is the second death, which is Jesus' second coming. The second death is the final judgment of all things. It is when Jesus finally comes back. And so, as we've said before, biblically, the number 1,000 is used for just an unimaginably big number. A thousand years is just a, a number that we cannot wrap our head around. You and I, we will be absolutely lucky if we get a hundred years on this planet. You know, so how in the world could we even imagine or make plans for a thousand years from now? So the idea is a big number. It's always been just a big number. So stop trying to make this time sequencing. It is the, the thousand years that's on view here in chapter 20 is it begins with Jesus resurrection and it ends with his second coming. No, it's not a, you know, thousand years like we count thousand years. It's a, an unimaginably large period of time that we can't wrap our mind around. So this thing could go on for another 2000 years. I have no idea. You don't have any idea. Who knows if it goes on, it only goes on because God is patient and loving and kind and he's waiting for evil to repent. 
Oh, anyhow, once again, we return to this, you know, big battle scene, a big gathering of Gog and Magog, which, you know, is an Old Testament portrayal of the enemy of God that thinks it's going to, uh, you know, get one up on God. But we find that instantaneously it is burnt up in flames. Chapter 20, verse 10. Just that quick, just that easy. No sweat on God's brow, no sweat on Jesus' brow here. And it is right for for us to see in chapters 17 to 20 that the beast, the false prophet, all three, you know, the, the, the beast, the false prophet, the dragon, um, and, you know, the, the, the whore Babylon, they all come to their demise at the same time. We're just seeing different scenes of it. And when they go, they go in a whimper, not a bang. The second death, the second death is, is the final judgment. It is the final moment. So Jesus comes back, and one of the things that happens when Jesus returns is the second death, which, you know, is the, the death of, of life and judgment. And that second death, we see the books are opened. Chapter 20, verse 12. So the books are opened, and each person is now judged based on what they had done. Chapter 20, verse 12 to 13. And it seems like there are only two places of belonging. You are either with the lamb as his bride, or you are in the lake of fire. That You, you belong in one of two places. Now, I get it. That sounds harsh, right? Ooh, how can God be so harsh? I think the underlying question is, do, do you trust God to judge fairly? I know who I don't trust to judge fairly. Humans. I never see humans judging fairly. I don't know how to judge fairly. I, I see people who want vengeance. I see people who can't think straight when it comes time for judging others. That's what I see as a regular norm. So I certainly am not going to trust human beings. And that means I'm not going to trust a government to judge fairly. That doesn't mean that we can't get it right sometimes. But by and large, human beings just get it wrong. I trust God to do it fairly. I trust that God will judge exactly the way he says. He will judge us based on our love for God. He will judge us based on our love for our neighbor. And he will judge us based on what we were given. He will judge fairly. That I trust in. And if you think that it just sounds unfair, well, that probably means you just don't think God can just fairly, which probably means that you think you can judge fairly. I don't buy it. Anyhow, 17 to 20. 17 to 20 form this big, gregarious picture of the end of evil, plain and simple. And now the new heavens and the new earth are actually ready. They're actually ready to come into play, which takes us back to where we began. And that is, there is no way we should ever put our trust in the governments and institutions of this world. That is what the book of Revelation has been teaching us. Do not put your trust, do not put your life, you know, feelings into government of any or institutions of any kind. Put your trust into God and God alone. There is no human institution that will ever get rid of evil without being evil itself. And so God is the only one who can actually get rid of evil and not be evil himself. That's the message. And, and, and the message here is, is that the second you know, death has not come yet. So there's plenty of time to repent. Repent we should. And when we repent, we should feel great. We should feel great. I, I'm going to end with, with um, 
you know, uh, uh, Johnny Cash's uh, little song, Sooner or Later God's Gonna Cut You Down. In the song, he has a moment where he says, I've, I've been down on bended knee take, talking to the man from Galilee. He spoke to me in a voice so sweet. I thought I heard the shuffle of angels' feet. He called my name and my heart stood still. And what he said was, John, go do my will. Billy, go do my will. Follow me. I've been watching that Chosen series. Man, I think they portray those apostles just right. You know, they were just like you and me. And all Jesus, all God is calling us to do is to follow him, to trust him, that he will bring an end to evil. Be patient because God is patient. Be loving in the meantime. Take on the burden of schools and hospitals and relief of the poor like Christians have always done. Be champions of goodness like Christians have always been doing. Be that and God is the one to be trusted. That's the message. That's the only message. God will bring an end to evil. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. I wanted to be on the right side of that. I want everybody else to be on the right side of that. So let's get on the right side of this and let's fill this, you know, our minds with this imagery of God defeating evil once and for all. And that lets us to look around and to say, Ah, the burden is not mine. God is going to take care of this. I can carry on. That's what the book of Revelation is, is calling us to do. So uh, we will catch you next time for the last final vision of heaven and earth remade just the way God wanted it all along. Catch you next time. <laughs>